Hosea chapter 2, verses uh, 19 and 20 is what we'll be taking a look at here this morning. Um, if you were here last week, we know, you know that we actually went through the entire uh, chapter. We finished chapter 2. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to kind of go back a little bit because we skipped over a really important part, not intentionally, but because it would have uh, demanded a little bit more time to unpack it. So that's what we're going to do today is we're going to unpack a little bit further what God had in store for the people of Israel and look at that a little bit more in depth. But um, before we jump into that, um, I want to uh, just kind of lay a little bit of a groundwork to kind of catch us up to speed. So the next slide, I'll just go through what some of these slides uh, declare, state, and whatnot. So first of all, what we see in all of chapter 2 is sort of um, what's written kind of in poetic type language. And we see that God's acting is not only the plaintiff, meaning he's bringing an accusation, but he's also acting as the judge. So there's a dual role that God's actually acting in this poem in chapter 2. And what God is doing is actually bringing an indictment against his wife uh, for adultery. That his wife, uh, Israel, has actually been unfaithful to God. So this is the, this was being played out within chapter 2. And what God does is he goes through all the different ways in which Israel has been unfaithful to God. That she is, for the most part, I've been saying this in the past several weeks, that in a lot of ways the content that we cover through the book of Hosea can be a little bit graphic. It, it, it can be a little bit more PG-13. So just keep that in mind of little ones, if you have little ones that are here, uh, it's not because we're being overtly graphic, it's just, we're trying to be uh, consistent with what Hosea is trying to say, that the content that's going on here is likened to a wife who is regularly getting in bed with another lover or multitude of lovers. In this particular case, the wife that is basically on trial or in this trial happens to be Israel. Uh, her husband is actually the one bringing the charge, and her husband also happens to be the one who is the judge who's actually bringing the, 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 the condemnation, the judgment. So that's chapter 2 in short, and at the end, what we basically know is that Israel is basically guilty on multiple accounts. So next slide, we'll take a look at a little bit about what was, uh, who Israel's lover was. So Israel was basically repeatedly giving herself to uh, these lovers, uh, plural, or lover called Baal, Baal. Hold on a second. There we go. Um. I want to give you a little bit of a background so you can kind of understand. So hopefully the worship, Israel's worship of Baal makes a little bit of sense. To understand this, you've got to go back a little bit, several hundred years, uh, centuries into Israel's history from the time in which they were at. So several hundred years prior to Israel um, dealing with what's going on with Hosea in that time, Israel had been a slave, or as a nation, they'd been a slave in a nation south of them called Egypt. And what God had done is he basically acted on Israel's behalf, and he rescued them from the slavery there in Egypt. Um, and it was through what they actually celebrate today called the Passover. And so for 40 years, the children of Israel basically wandered uh, in that little intermediary uh, stretch of land from Egypt into the land of Canaan called the wilderness. So if you're kind of wondering like, a little bit like, what does wilderness mean? It sounds a really nice place. It's a horrible place. In fact, to try to get a graphic picture in your mind, Think of uh, exactly that stretch of land from uh, Paso Robles all the way to Bakersfield. It's exactly what it's like. It's just, that's wilderness. Uh, there's nothing living out there. It's, everything is literally just death. That's the type of wilderness experience that the people of Israel would have lived in. Um, it was very harsh uh, territory, harsh terrain. And the way that you would survive and live out in those conditions is twofold. For the most part... Uh, you would live based upon uh, raising flocks. Um, you would never basically survive based upon uh, planting or agriculture because 
There are no streams. There's no living bodies of water out there. There's no way to actually plant seed. There's no way to actually grow crops. Because another thing about the children of Israel is they were constantly moving around, right? So they were always moving from point A to point B to C to D constantly throughout this entire wilderness journey. So they were, for the most part, a society that was strictly that of um, shepherds. There was, there was no farming really involved in this intermediary pay, place. When the children of Israel finally came into the land of Canaan, one of the things that they noticed was that this land was absolutely beautiful beyond description. It was literally, quite literally, a land flowing with milk and honey. And I, I should say quite literally. It's, tech, it's not literal. I mean, it was, it was more metaphorical as a basically way, way of saying, this land is unbelievable. It's flowing with milk and honey. I mean, it's not like actual... Like rivers were made of honey and milk and uh, gold and chocolate. It'd be amazing if it was. It wasn't like Willy Wonka's factory. But it was, it was unbelievable. It was, I mean, imagine 40 years of living in that stretch of territory between Paso and, uh, you know, Bakersfield. And to go from there into a place where it's absolutely lush. It's green. There's crops everywhere. There's grapes growing everywhere you look. There's wheat. There's, it's just absolutely gorgeous. And so what happened was they began to realize that the people, the inhabitants of the land that lived in that particular territory were called the Canaanites. And uh, there was a lot of different types of tribes of people that lived in that land called the Canaanites. And they had a, a local deity that they worshipped. His name was Baal. 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 Whatever, however you want to describe it. And they basically said the reason why our territory, our land is fertile is because we worship Baal. Baal was basically, for the most part, a, uh, a warrior slash fertility cult. And the way that you would go about worshiping Baal is that you would go into the, uh, the little temples that they would have, and you would have sex with temple prostitutes. And the idea would be that the more people that engage in temple prostitution, sometimes it would involve rape, sometimes it would involve bringing virgins, sometimes it would involve all these other types of sexual activities. The idea would be that somehow this would pull the lever which would get Baal to do what Baal does and bring about fertility, meaning it would rain. Rain would come upon your crops. Crops would bear forth fruit. Fruit would, you know, grain would make you prosperous. That's how you prospered as a nation. So the local Canaanite tribes are basically saying, hey, it's Baal that has made us prosper. Now, the question that was constantly circulating in the minds of the people of Israel was the same question that you and I wrestle with every single day. Well, if God blesses them, can he do the same for me? Uh, if, if God gave fertile land to these pagan Canaanite people, can he also give land and fertile territory to my clan, my tribe, my groupings of people? Can God do the same? We don't say that. We say, well, if God can give my best friend a wife or a husband, can he give me a wife or a husband? Or if God can give you know, one of my best friends uh, a child. Why hasn't he given me a child? If God can give my best friend or some people that I know a job, why hasn't he done the same thing for me? Just a second here. This thing drives me nuts. Intermission. There we go. So the question that they were wrestling with is I describe it is, could God provide these fertile farms in the promised land for us? Would the fertility God need to be honored? Because if that's who is being attributed for fertility, the God Baal, would this God Baal need to be 
honored by the people of Israel. And so what they basically said is we've got to cover all of our deity bases. If Yahweh delivers us out of the land of Egypt, takes us away from slavery, has sustained us by way of manna and by way of uh, other means throughout the wilderness, uh, now we're in this land, this territory, a whole new way of life. Rather than shepherding the way that we exclusively have done, now we're kind of mingling shepherding a little bit with agriculture, a little bit of bartering, bargaining, all these other types of means of economy are not kind of entering into the people of Israel's uh, life. And so now they're wrestling with this question of like, should we just honor both gods, Yahweh and Baal? And this is what was basically happening. And this continued to happen for centuries. Uh, it's really sort of this fusion, this kind of bringing together of different types of deities. And this is what was happening. So the children of Israel, not that they completely turned their back on Yahweh, wasn't that they divorced Yahweh, divorced God. They stayed married to God and says, we're going to shack up, get in the bed with these other deities. We're going to devote ourselves to them. We're going to give our hearts to them with the hopes and anticipation that Baal will bless us back. Give us fertile ground. Give us victory in our warfare, protect us, take care of us. In reality, this is exactly the same type of stuff that you and I deal with on a daily basis. And we, we wouldn't call it, you know, worshiping Baal, but we do the same types of things. We give our hearts away to these other things, hoping somehow that by doing so, they will give us back the things that we need to survive. Money, affirmation, praise, security, um, all of these things that we need. And what God has been saying all along is that I'll give these things to you. This is the whole point that God is basically making. This is why God uh, paints this scenario through Hosea as a court scenario, a courtroom, that God's saying, I'm about to divorce you because you're guilty. You stand guilty. I've been nothing but a good, blessing, kind, loving God. And you guys have been nothing but adulterous, taking the things that I've given you and the money that I give you that I put into your bank account, that I put upon your credit card, you take and you go buy and give money away to buy gifts to your little lovers. It's like buying boxes of chocolates or buying roses for somebody else hoping to get them to like you back. And instead, you don't get love back, you get a trinket back. You get a fertile season. You get a bumper crop or you get some money to pay your debt. You get all of these little insignificant things in the scope of things just to help you out momentarily. But there's a lot that you don't get. You may get some, but there's a lot that you don't get. So the people of Israel, in a lot of ways, aren't too far from us. And what we've said before is that God likes and likens us to a marriage. Interesting thing about we've been saying about a marriage is that in all marriages, especially the marriage with God, is that Israel basically found herself um, when God found, I should say, Israel, Israel was a slave. She was in Egypt. Think of Israel as a stripped naked with scars and open sores on her body with teeth that are all jacked up because she's been smacked in the face so many times, bruises on her arms, hair is all disheveled. That's how God found her. She says, I want her to be my wife. And in any marriage, the liabilities of that spouse, the one that's broken and messed up, in this case Israel, all the liabilities are assumed by the husband and all of his assets are then transferred over to his lowly and broken wife. 
This is what happened with Israel. No one can raise a charge against God. No one can in this courtroom say, but God, you haven't been nice to me. Right? I mean, how many of us have seen marriages that dissolve? If you are in any way, shape, or form honest, you realize if you have been part of that or if you've known somebody that's been part of that, every single person in that party, in that relationship, which there's two, but, you know, husband or wife, can always take some blame or credit. Now, some may do horrible things that are, in a lot of ways, unforgivable, but at the end of the day, both parties share some blame to some degree. It can truly be said of God that he was the perfect husband who did nothing but love, treasure, shower, care, protect, serve, honor, cleanse, wash, and deliver his people over and over and over again. And yet they've been unfaithful to him. I hope what you're seeing so far is that Israel's story is not too dissimilar from your and my story. Have you got that so far? In other words, like Israel, we are people that have been given everything. The very breath in our lungs. The very fact that we can talk. The very fact that we can think. The very fact that we live here in America as opposed to living in Syria. Right in the middle of a war zone. The fact that we have everything that we have. Maybe you have one car, two cars, a couple televisions, a couple computers. Really fast, high-speed Wi-Fi. I mean, we have all of this stuff. Every single thing we have has been a gift given to us by a gracious, kind God. And yet, oftentimes, we use these things as means to seek out our lovers. We use our Wi-Fi rather than to research God's word and be a blessing by sending emails to download porn, to exploit people, to break covenant with our loving God. Who's been nothing but good to us. So as we move on, the next thing I want to take a look at, slide-wise, again, all this is just prep work. You're welcome. Worshiping any other God is not, however, benign. See, here's the thing. We can tend to think it would be like, well, what's a big deal? Like, if Israel wants to worship another God, what's a big deal about that? Like, it's not hurting anybody. That's the lie. Okay, let me just say this again. That's the lie that has to be exposed. We live in a culture where we're just all about being personal. Where we're just like, well, what's a big deal? Like, you know, I shacked up with so-and-so, and we're not really hurting anybody. Or... I'm doing something that nobody else really knows about. It's not really hurting anybody. But the point of the matter is, is that is simply not true. I was kind of thinking about this. Like, couldn't there have been a way of worshiping Baal that wasn't, like, so destructive? Like, couldn't they, like, done something? But that's the very nature of worshiping false gods. Here's how it works. You go to these false gods, and you give them some sacrifice. You give them some piece of you, or if you don't have enough, you give them some piece of somebody else. This is where child sacrifice comes in, right? Ancient tribal forms of child sacrifice, like, like we need a virgin, you know, who's eight years old, and we need to bring her because that's all the gods want. We look at that, and we're like, that's repulsive. But we have our own forms of sacrifice. We're really far away from Wall Street, for example, Wall Street, it's all about business. But there's rules of how to succeed in business. And the rules are you work hard. You sacrifice everything, even if it is your family. We even say that. We even use religious terminology. He's sacrificing his family for his career. 
It's the same thing. Somebody always gets crushed in order to receive some sort of blessing back. A spouse gets oppressed because a husband's never there. Maybe he's there physically, but mentally, he's always checked out night after night, sits on the couch, forgets the fact that he's living in a living room surrounded by a wife and a family that loves him. He's just simply checked out. He's sacrificing for his God is what he's doing. It's a worship issue. So there is no benign reality of worshiping these false gods. So what happened, God said to his people, is that when his people worship these false gods, there was all sorts of forms of collapse, three of them, which we'll look at and then we'll jump right into the passage. First of all, creation disintegrated or collapsed. And creation involved the environment, the ecological world around them. All of these things kind of fell in and spiraled into chaos. Ecological, environmental crisis or chaos. Second thing, society actually disintegrated. What I mean by that is the most rudimentary sense of society, meaning interpersonal relationships. And this could be between husband and wife. It can be boyfriend and girlfriend. It can be between roommate and roommate. It can be between boss and employee. Uh, those relationships begin to break apart and sever and fall down. Chaos, in other words, ensues. Now, there's all sorts of sort of subpoints under that you can think about as terms of a society enlarged or in a larger macro perspective. So, for example, um, everything kind of becomes sort of politically chaotic. In other words, what you have is a two-party system constantly fighting against each other, infighting, neither really working for the betterment and the best of everybody else. They just bicker to fight to keep their tenure. And there's, in other words, what you're seeing is literally a predatory society where people are feeding off of other people. Do you agree? You know what politics is? People feeding off of people? It's predatory. Economical, meaning there's chaos. Children of Israel find themselves spending more money than they were actually bringing in. But we don't know anything about this, do we? <laughs> like, this, like, is this, like, like this, here's the crazy thing. Hosea, written like, I don't know, 2,700 years ago. Not much has changed in this planet we live in. Moralists, the chaos, the morals were just going out the door. People were doing what they wanted to do. They were acting and behaving in any type of way that they felt was just right. All of this had to do with the fact that society was disintegrating. Let me put it this way. God is going to say, I'll read it in a second. I'll get back to this. And then finally, the relationship with God was disintegrated. That's an obvious, and that's a given. Now, next slide. We're going to jump right into the text. Here we go. After I read this. Sorry, go back. I want to read that. I want to finish that. I think it's an important point. So here's the deal. At the core of Judaism's life was this assertion that the way to live and the way to thrive was to love God and love neighbor. That's what God always said. Love me and love those who bear my image. And you'll thrive. Any type of chaos that's going on in the society around you or in, type, in terms of creation around you, I'll protect you. Any other nation that wants to come in and crush you, God says, I'll be your defender. You need food? I'll be your fertile God. I'll provide for you. I'll put food on your table. Remember I did that for your forefathers? I took care of them. I made food out of nothing called manna, which means what is it? God took care of everything miraculously. 
Why? Because God says the way that you'll thrive is by loving me and loving others. But at the center of bow worship, or the worship of any other system other than the true and living God, basically asserts the idea is that the way to live is by using God and using others. That's how you thrive. Does that make sense? So in other words, at every other level, every other worship within every other system apart from the living creator God is a system of work and response or cause and reaction. You'd serve, you do, you sacrifice, or if you don't have something to sacrifice, you sacrifice somebody else, and in response, you will get fertility. You will get bowels, blessing. That's the idea, or at least that's the way it looked at. But again, when you think about that, the first way, in terms of Judaism's assertion, that's life-giving. Can you imagine a society where everybody is loving God and loving each other? In other words, where a neighbor bakes you know, an extra loaf of banana bread, and they're like, you know what, I'm just gonna go give banana bread away to my neighbors. Or they grow crops in their backyard, and they're like, I've got so many zucchinis, I need to find people to give this stuff away just to bless them. Or you go to Starbucks, and someone's like, you know what, drinks are on me today. Get as many lattes, gingerbread lattes as you want. It's all on me. I love you. I wanna serve you. I wanna lay my life down for you rather than you lay your life down for me. That's the society that thrives. You're like, that sounds amazing. I've never seen that. I know, neither have I. Now, the point of the matter is, is that the society where Baal is king and God, it's a predatory society. We eat off of each other. We feed off of each other. If you're weak, if you're broken, if you're by the wayside, and if I can take something from you and take advantage of you, I will. That society is weak, anemic, defensive, protective. It becomes militaristic. It becomes people that are living in fear and anxiety. And God says, here's what I want to do with you, Israel, because Israel, you have worshipped Baal, false gods, and what has come of you is nothing more than breakdown on every single level. With regard to relationship to creation, with regard to your relationship to society, with regard to your relationship with me, everything in your life, Israel, is nothing but chaos. Have you ever related to that? And here's what God is saying. Here's what I'm going to do for you. And the reason for this is causing Israel is that you have given your heart away to these false gods. Now, let's jump into the story. Because what should this God do? Now, here's the thing. Before I read, this other thought came to mind. Like, if God had counselors, like if God kind of showed up, he's like, look, if I have counselors, which I don't have counselors, nobody counsels me. All of my counselors probably would have said, write her off divorce her, cast her away, get rid of her, remove yourself from her because she has been nothing but guilty. Have you ever given anybody that counsel? Like somebody that you know, maybe that has been going through a really horrible relationship and they've had a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or a spouse or somebody that has repeatedly over and over and over again committed, you know, infidelity. I mean, there's not, that's a perfectly just, FYI, perfectly just advice to say, break up with them, divorce them. Perfectly just. And God's saying, I'm perfectly just in divorcing Israel. But here's what I'm going to do. The marriage is dissolved. It's broken. But here's what my promise is to do. Enter the story. I'll pick it up at verse 16. I'll read this. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. And they shall be remembered 
by name. No more. Verse 18, this is where we enter into the story here on the screen. And I will make for them a covenant. And in that day, the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things at the ground. So stop real quick and just think about this. We've got to say, yes, creation is messed up. Creation is imploding. It's breaking. It's coming in upon itself. And it's just out of control. But God says, here's what I will do. At some point in the future, I will undo the chaos of creation. So radical is what God is saying is that one day, those very elements that we oftentimes dread in fear in this world, whether it be from swelling waters that rise out of the sea like a tsunami, or typhoons, or hurricanes, or wild beasts, or bears, or lions, or all of these things that we live in fear over, the None of us, I think, are living in fear of our lions. But imagine if you lived out in open territory and you would live in fear of lions. God says, I will undo all that and I will bring it all to a peaceful calm. Because creation, I own. In other words, I can pull strings. I know how to make things right. What you are called to do, Israel, is to love me and love others. And I will take care of everything else. And here's what God is saying, is that I will make a covenant with all of creation. Secondly, he goes on, and he says, and I will abolish the bow and the sword and war and land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And here's what God is saying. Secondly, he said, look, your relationship to society is absolutely collapsed. You guys live in fear. You guys live in dread. It's one of the reasons why you build bows in the first place, one of the reasons why you feel like you need to defend and protect yourself because you're afraid of everybody somehow coming in and taking stuff that doesn't belong to them. Look, it's one of the reasons why we as human beings, we put multiple locks upon our doors. If you drive a nice car, you throw down the club on your steering wheel. It's one of the reasons why we raise pit bulls and not just simple little chihuahuas because we realize that for one, a chihuahua is worthless in terms of, (laughs) I could stop right there, but I'm not. They're worthless in defending you, all right? But it's why the reason people like big dogs that can fight and are scary because they have a protection factor. Because we're constantly afraid someone taking something from us. We are in a broken society and culture. It's why we have politicians make new laws to legislate things, to protect us. That's their purpose. But when they fail, when justice doesn't happen, Who's going to protect us? God says, I will. I will. I created society. I have the way to protect you. And then he goes on. Verse 19, he says, And I will betroth thee to me forever, and I will betroth thee to me in righteousness, and justice, and steadfast love, and mercy, and I will betroth thee to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And here's what God says. And the whole thing with your relationship with me will be repaired, will be restored. Paying attention to this, storyline you realize that this is a narrative it's a repeating narrative in fact if you're familiar with the bible you realize it takes you right back to the initial narrative of the very first story in the bible which is the story of creation which is a story of absolute harmony beauty perfection we call it an eden it was a perfected place an environment in other words animals were lying down with each other i would imagine snakes were hanging out with like I don't know, birds and lambs were laying down with, you know, lions and they were all just kind of getting it on and having a good time. It was absolute beauty. And Adam actually got along with his wife and they would have great talks and enjoy each other. And everything was within harmony. It says that even all creation was in harmony or unity with God. Union with God. Until Adam and Eve said, 
we'll find alternative sources to give us life. The snake lied. Eat this fruit. Does God really have your best interests in mind? He doesn't. He certainly doesn't. If he had your best interests in mind, then why would he withhold this good fruit from you? He obviously doesn't love you. Fruit's in your hand. It looks good. You have the power to do it. Do it. And the sin was not so much of them eating an apple. It was them going into another place other than the hand of God for their life. It was them taking their life in their own hands, saying, I think I know better than God, and I will turn to something other than God for something that gives me life. And in return, it crushed them, killed them, destroyed undone creation, had broken society, because right after that, God comes to Adam, he's like, Adam, where are you? Like, what happened? Adam's like, uh, I have no idea. It's the woman you gave me. He turns his back on his wife. Like, those are the marriages that we are more familiar with, right? Broken relationships, trying to get along, trying to make things work. Why did it happen? It was because sin destroyed everything. It ruined everything. It undone everything good. But we see the same story taking place in Hosea. God had every right to banish Adam and Eve, without ever any promising them a return to Eden. And so we see this language constantly introduced in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament that what God is going to do is something absolutely unexpected. And in the case of Hosea and in the case of Israel, what God is going to do, he says, here's what's going to happen. If I had counselors, which I don't, they would counsel me to divorce you. And there's all sorts of other uh, idioms throughout the New Testament as well as the Old Testament to describe this idea of casting away. For example, if it was a nation, um, you would exile a nation or being it taken off. If it was a son, the son in the New Testament, for example, what would be the worst thing a son can do? Well, the worst thing a son can do is take his inheritance and go squander it and find himself in the middle of a pig sop. So Israel, because Israel is likened to a bride, the worst thing that can happen to a bride is for her to be divorced. And God says, Israel deserves to be divorced, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to marry her all over again. I'm going to woo her all over again. I'm going to show her how absolutely great I am. And by doing so, I will prove to her once and for all, clearly, emphatically, without any question, that the bowels that she constantly is giving her heart to, the false gods that she is constantly trying to go after, these imitation gods that she's constantly seeking they may offer her little trinkets they may offer her little things in return but what they cannot offer her is what i will offer her and god says i will give her five gifts he lays labels five things now this is oftentimes based upon most old testament scholars to see this as what was called a dowry a dowry was oftentimes what would happen is that if you were to marry someone say for example in the old testament and uh, you would go to the father i have two daughters and Kind of like the idea of a dowry. It'd be kind of sweet to like reintroduce this into our culture. But the idea would be that it's kind of set some sort of a guarantee. So in other words, if some guy is going to come take my daughter's hand in marriage and she doesn't know how to treat him um, and he's a jerk and he ends up, you know, getting dumped, at least she's got a big significant income to live off of with him out of the picture. So in other words, it's sort of a, a, a nice um, insurance policy to some degree. And so God says, I'm going to give Israel a dowry. Now, because God also happens to be the father in this 
strange scenario. Um, he, and oftentimes in ancient custom, uh, you, can, you would oftentimes give the dowry to the father or the older brother or someone overseeing and taking care of. Instead, uh, if there was none of that, then it would just simply go straight directly to the woman. And here's what God's saying. is, I will give you, Israel, a dowry. I will give you a guarantee. I will give you something that none of your other false gods can ever give you. But these are the very things that you need to thrive and live, and I will give them to you. Your false counterfeit gods, bow that you give your heart to, it may offer you all these other subordinate things, but they can never give you the things that actually sustain life. That's something that can only come from the hand of the life-sustaining God. So here they are. I'll go through them quickly. First of all, God says, I will give you righteousness. He says that in verse 20. Again, he says, uh, verse 19, he says, and I will betroth you to me forever, and I will betroth you to me in righteousness. The word righteousness is the uh, Hebrew word tzedek. Um, It can mean an idea of walking in a correct path or a path that is in line or in sync with God. Here's a couple uh, definitions from a couple different authors. One is a guy by the name of Derek Kidner. Here's what he says. Next slide. He says, God's righteousness is creative, stepping in to put the very worst things to right. It is so often paired with salvation that some modern versions actually tend to call it deliverance. The idea of righteousness, that God is setting things right. Think of it as a bone that is out of joint. You can live with a bone that's out of joint, right? Has anybody ever had a bone that's out of joint? It's extremely painful. It's hard to do anything without constantly thinking of throbbing pain throughout your entire body, even though it might just simply be your arm that's affected. I mean, you can still go shopping, you can still watch television, you can still maybe even go to a baseball game. There's certain things that you can still do, but you're riddled with pain. You're not thriving. And God says, righteousness is me putting back to right all that which is out of joint. Second thing, uh, next uh, definition is... uh, by two guys by the name of Sinclair Ferguson and J.I. Packer. This is out of a book called The New Dictionary of Theology. Here's what they say. To have righteousness meant to belong to the covenant, the bounty marker, or the boundary marker, I should say, of which the Torah, uh, 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 of which it was the Torah, it says the hope of which was God in accordance with his own righteousness that he would act in history once and for all to vindicate or to justify his people. In other words, what God is saying is that the way that I will give you this gift is I will be the one over you that will protect you. And if anything comes against you, if there's any charge given against you, it will be my record that will stand to it. All of your enemies will be silent. For the people of Israel, this looked like, say, a foreign nation invading. God says, I'll protect you. For Job, this looked like the devil coming to God and the devil accusing before God, Job and his life, and God's like, look, I'll stand up by the side of Job. For anybody who trusts and believes in God, this is God saying, I will fight your greatest enemies. Now, don't think enemies in terms of the guy that you don't like at work. The greatest enemy that Jesus took on was the devil himself. Death is what he feeds on. Death is the only thing that he can deliver. The greatest enemy that wages war against all of us is death. And what we see God giving in Jesus is the undoing of death. That's what his righteousness brings about. That's what is taking place by him standing up against our greatest foe, saying, no, they belong to me. They're mine. 
Second thing God says is that he'll give is justice. Uh, justice is the idea of doing what's right or just. Setting that which is wrong to right. And the book of Amos chapter 5, who also prophesied during the same time as Hosea, says, this, I hate, I despise your feasts. I look to no delight at your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer to me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Take them away from my, uh, take away the noise of your songs to your melody and your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Can you imagine if God were to come into our church service and say, I'm sick and tired of this music. It's horrible. I like Darren's accent, but I'm not into the songs that they're writing. I'm not into the what I'm, I don't like what I'm hearing. Can you imagine God coming in here and like cherry picking certain people saying, look, you, you, and you, you sing, you raise your hands, you have notes in your Bible, you journal every day, you memorize verses, you listen to Bible studies, you go online and you fight, defend the faith. But what I hate about all that is you harbor grudges against people that have wronged you. You withhold the very thing I've lavished upon you. Forgiveness. You're withholding justice. I don't want your sacrifice. I don't want your song. I don't want all of this show. I want you to reflect me in righteousness and justice. It's absolutely amazing what God's saying. It's shocking. It's like shocking language. Can you imagine being in that church service and you're like, ah, picked the wrong day to go to like, church today it's not a good day today that's what was happening third thing god says i will give steadfast love we'll give steadfast love it's a great word so word has said it's actually as a side note i would encourage you if you want to do like a little bible study look at the word has said it's an unbelievable word it's a word that oftentimes depicts god's covenant faithfulness meaning that once you are within this covenant relationship with god god will always 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 rise to the occasion to be your protector, to work in your favor, to way Paul would put it, he works all things for your good to those that are in Christ Jesus. That is covenant language. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 says this, and I will desire steadfast love and not sacrifice and knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What God is saying is that from his people, he wants covenant fidelity, covenant love. Do you know that God wants you to love him the way that he loves you? That might sound shocking. You're like, how can I do that? That's beyond me. The way the Bible works is you have a God that gives, think of it this way, blood. In blood is life. You have a God that gives blood transfusion. He gives you his blood, and from his blood comes the life. Our God is not a vampire. He doesn't suck your blood and suck your life. He is a life-giving God. And once you're moved, changed, transformed by that love, then you now tap into that account of love to give back to him. That's what he's saying. Fourthly, mercy. He says, I'll give you mercy. It's an interesting plan. Word here earlier, I won't go into it, but the idea is that children of Israel did not deserve mercy, but God says, I will give them what they do not deserve, mercy. Finally, he says, faithfulness. This is a great word. Look, at the end of the day, most of us, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, what we want more than anything, there's two things that really I think we want. We want our pain to be validated. We want, we want someone to commit themselves to us. We want our pain to be validated in life, right? Everybody agree? Life offers a lot of pain. We want that to be validated. We want somebody, I don't care who it is, 
We want someone to be like, oh, that stinks. It's horrible. We want our pain to be validated, but we also want someone to be faithful to us. We look for fidelity from somebody back to us. But all we end up finding is a vast oasis or desert land, I should say, of desolation and brokenness. Crushed dreams, hopes, because every single person we have ever hoped that they would be faithful to us have always, at some point, let us down. Why? They're not God. They can't. The problem is that we have misplaced our confidence in a counterfeit. And we elevated something that's created to the level of our creator, and it's let us down. It's broken our hearts. And when it broke, we broke. And here's what God says. I will be faithful to you. I will never, ever, ever, ever forsake you. Turn my back on you. Why could God say that? Israel deserved to be judged. You know what's shocking? Is that Israel was judged, although it wasn't upon the nation. The world was judged, although it wasn't upon the world. How? Someone took their place and took the judgment upon themselves. That God came, and this is what we see in Jesus, on the cross, substituted himself, took our place, took upon himself judgment. He was divorced. He was exiled. He was thrown into the shop with all the pigs. He was treated as the worst criminal violator of covenant in our place so that you and I who are actually the criminals can be treated like sons and daughters that's what happened that's the good news and through that Jesus is rebuilding restoring redoing our lives not just by taking an old broken marriage and going through marriage counseling and hoping that'll be all restored It's as if God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to marry you all over again. I'm going to put a brand new dress upon you. I'm going to reintroduce my profound love to you in ways like I've never done this before. I'm going to win your heart all over again. Jesus would put it this way. It's like being birthed anew. That's what God does. This is what the gospel offers you. Your God's your subordinate hopes and dreams, your counterfeit deities may offer you trinkets when you pull the lever right, but what they cannot ever offer you is fidelity, faithfulness, mercy, kindness, loving kindness, ever. They can offer you counterfeit goods, but never truly satisfy you. I'm gonna have the worship team come on up and we'll finish. In some ways, it kind of reminds me of sort of the crisis that we have in America, or in probably really in the world today, with food, all right? You know, I, I like watching kind of food shows, but, you know, there's all sorts of strange, like, counterfeit foods that are being made today, right? We call that McDonald's. And, and the thing is that, that science has actually proven that there is something stimulating about be, eating, use polite words, trashy food. It feels really good. You eat it, and you're like, I want some more. Like, that's amazing. I want more of whatever's in there, MSG, salt, 
sugar. Like, it's so amazing. Like, and we keep going back to it. We keep feeding on it. The problem is, is that we're loading up on calories, but absolutely no nutritional value. You know what that means? Doctors are literally saying, they're like, we are dying on the trashy food that we're eating because it's really not food. I see the same thing with the offer of the gospel, that we feast off of all this counterfeit God. It tastes great. It offers us some sort of help. But at the end of the day, our souls are malnourished and dying. And Jesus says, I want you to live and thrive. Trust me. Turn to me. Know that I'm a God that is trustworthy. Why don't we all stand? And we're going to finish. We're going to sing a song or two and partake of communion. If you're here this morning, you know, tab it late. If uh, you got kids in the back, um, usually by 12.30, 5 at the latest, make sure you go pick up your kids. You're more than welcome to bring them back in here. We're going to sing. Give some time to just sing. With some communion for you to partake. Some rugs in the front if you just want to get in your face for God. We're going to have some people over off on the side that want to pray. Um, no matter what types of circumstances you guys are going through in your life. Maybe it's physical healing. Maybe it's emotional healing. Stuff that you're going through. God wants to meet you here. He is here. He loves you. Don't be afraid to share what you're going through with somebody that loves you back and wants to be there to help you. Let's sing.